episode 48 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. Paulette Goddard is one of those queens from woman's pictures that nearly everyone from the classic studio era has a story about. Each time I begin a new Hollywood memoir, I hope to gain a little gem about Paulette. I don't cover gossip in depth here on the podcast. I prefer to focus on the work the women have done. Many of the stories about Paulette Goddard are not kind. As is usually the case, the meanest stories gain the most traction in memory and retelling. Maria Riva has one in her biography she wrote of her mother, Marlena Dietrich, about the time her mother met with Paulette on a train. Paulette carried a case full of jewels and explained her system for acquiring them. It made Paulette look heartlessly mercenary. In the book At Lunch with Orson Welles, he said Paulette was a wonderful girl, but she's a living cash register. Of course a man would be so crass with the terminology of commerce to describe a dame trying to feather a nest egg. For a woman we're talking about here who once had to pick strawberries to earn a living until she finally realized at the age of 14 that by luck of nature, she was beautiful and could earn a less labor-intensive living, she climbed her way to the top of a very competitive industry. I can't muster or agree with the descriptions of Wells and other people like Dietrich who had for Paulette Goddard stockpiling of luxury goods. Were Paulette a Paul, she would be celebrated as an entrepreneur and hailed for her business acumen. This Paul would be lionized for telling stories about when he wore an onion around his belt and how he worked odd jobs before he climbed the ladder to success. There are plenty of stories that testify to the big business brain Paulette had on her shoulders. She showed Burgess Meredith how to earn capital from a parcel of farmland he owned in upstate New York. She showed him how to lease it to the government so they paid to raise crops for the war effort on his land. Her last husband, Remark, told a friend that a deciding factor why he chose to marry Paulette was because she gave him excellent stock tips. Paulette studied a wide variety of fields and topics with gusto. Anita Luce wrote that Paulette collected experts or hired them outright to complete a lifelong project of independent study. She was curious, engaged, and well-read. She was the type of dame who quoted Oscar Wilde in publicity interviews. Men of letters fell speechless in her presence. She had devoted admirers among the celebrated wits and brains of the era. Aldous Huxley, H.G. Wells, George Gershwin among them, not to mention her second husband, Charlie Chaplin. The fact that she was dubbed in the gossip columns as Scarlett O. Goddard makes her a central figure in one of the most famous Hollywood legends. She was the frontrunner in David O. Selznick's two-year search for the Southern Belle of the Masses bestseller by Margaret Mitchell until Vivian Lee snagged the honor. 
One of the juiciest stories about Paulette centers around one evening in Ciro's Supper Club with Anatole Litvak. He was one of the most esteemed directors in Hollywood at the time. The accounts of what transpired vary. Some say they had sex on the dance floor. Others say he serviced her under the table. Still others say that she went down on him at the table. Anatole Ertola, as his friends called him, was recorded as admitting that all that happened that night was that the strap on her dress broke, leaving one of Paulette's breasts exposed, which he simply leaned over to kiss in tribute. The story about what happened in Ciro's was picked up by the tabloids and created a scandal that led all the way to Washington, D.C., In Doris Kearns Goodwin's biography of FDR, No Ordinary Time, she includes the time that Franklin Roosevelt asked Helen Gehagen Douglas for the truth about the evening. Apparently, the president ate it up. Paulette had to ask a friend in the State Department to make the investigation disappear. Whatever the truth about the evening, well done, Paulette. In Robert Sinclair's dramatic school, Made in MGM, in 1938, the drama between the students backstage is far more compelling than the classic plays they perform on stage. Dramatic school is an underappreciated gem. The scenes between the women in the school provide an eye-gasm worth of style courtesy of Adrian and in some way anticipate the work that he does the following year in the mega-ensemble the Women, from George Cukor. After Paulette signed with David O. Selznick, he loaned her out to MGM for two pictures. The first was Dramatic School, and the second was the crown jewel of woman's pictures, The Women, from 1939. While they were filming The Women, George Cukor recalled that he gave direction to Paulette as thus. Stop playing those feminine tricks and give me your best Spencer Tracy impression. The year before in dramatic school, Paulette took a page from Spencer Tracy's future co-star, Catherine Hepburn. Specifically, Paulette Goddard models her performance from a cue by Catherine Hepburn's performance in Stage Door, the RKO classic from 1937, directed by Gregory LaCava. I'm not knocking Paulette in any way with this comparison. Keep in mind that Paulette's first big role was in the silent picture Modern Times with Chaplin in 1936. Before that, she had only done bit parts and worked as an extra. Her first major speaking role was The Young and Heart from earlier in 1938, where she received third billing. Paulette had good notices throughout her career, but she was still developing her craft when she went to MGM. In no way does she mimic Catherine Hepburn when she plays the head girl Nana, but Paulette sussed the essence of Kate's character in the Footslight Club with her role against Ginger Rogers. Wealth and privilege had given both women a keen access to the stage with a brittle protective shell. It's what enables Hepburn as Terry Randall to storm the Broadway producer's office in outrage after an eager hopeful in the waiting room faints with hunger. Because she's affluent, well-dressed, with a plum, clippy accent, she can give out to a producer, played by the oily Adolf Manjou, with tangible authority. 
He might be able to ignore the showgirls and aspiring actresses in his waiting room, but the Bryn Mawr bona fides that waft off Catherine Hepburn gives her the authority to put him in his place. She doesn't need to wait on him or settle for his pheasant bordelaise. She's independent of the need to grovel at the producer's feet. In dramatic school, Paulette Goddard exudes the same imperious tone, even if she wasn't born to it like Hepburn was. Paulette isn't mainline or formally educated, but she has another form of authority that can be just as powerful to stop men in their tracks. She is, as Constance Collier put it, a natural-born honeypot. I would never argue that one should aspire to the honeypot or that it's as powerful or transformative as a good education, but while it flows as it did for a long time for Paulette, being desirable opens many doors, and it also permits women to be bold in a way they could not if men did not lose the run of themselves in their presence. When you draw men like flies, you can shred them to bits, and they will generally be too lust-sick to take offense or slam the door in your face. In dramatic school, Paulette thinks nothing of approaching one of the most eligible bachelors in Paris and roping him into a scheme to get back at her rival, played by Louise Rayner. Secure in her own allure, a siren like Paulette and the character she plays can talk to anyone. The idea that gorgeous women are really painfully shy wallflowers is a fantasy straight out of the male-dominated writer's room. It's a fantasy right up there with the beautiful woman who doesn't know she's beautiful and the hot babe who falls for the schlub because he makes her laugh. Unlike many beautiful women, Paulette didn't rest on her looks and she had a bigger plan. She read everything, studied multiple subjects, and collected art. Here in this picture, Paulette effectively plays your number one antagonist and then at the same time proves herself to be your steadfast, most loyal friend. That's a del- delicate balance to play both, and it demands a lot of range between haughty and earnest. The script does not give Paulette the meatiness of such a scene as the calla lilies are in bloom again. But her character does grow and change in a way that Louise Rayner's character does not. When we first see Paulette, she's in dramatic class with a scowl on her face, wearing a jacket that would have made the Heathers tear their hair out in envy. Paulette's jacket, like the rest of her wardrobe, was made for her personally by Adrian, and it's made by the King of Shoulder Pads. No other designer made jackets that equipped women for battle the way Adrian did. Paulette's jacket is broad and cropped, and then it's laced across the front with what looks like a chandelier brooch. Early on in dramatic school, Paulette's character Nana tells Louise Rayner's Louise that when it comes to men, the less you give, the more you get. That might well have been Paulette's personal credo. What's remarkable about Paulette in dramatic school is that she's the only one who gives an entirely modern, natural performance. She usually appears at the center of a group when she's on screen, with other girls fanned around her like a Greek chorus. Lana Turner, for one, cannot disguise her admiration for her stylish classmate. Paulette wears clothes and fur like a runway model, with the posture of a supermodel. 
When someone once commented on her exceptional posture, Paulette replied back that it was a result of Chaplin whacking her with a ruler to straighten up her back. In dramatic school, each time Louise runs off with another one of her whoppers, as her fabulous character has a habit of doing, she looks off into the middle distance as though she were delivering a heavy monologue or Shakespearean soliloquy for even the most banal scenes. There's no sense for us in the audience that Louise occupies a room with anyone else. She's always in her head. That might have been a tactical decision for how to play a drama student, but it always takes her performance out of context with the other players. Overall, the impression is that she takes herself too seriously, both as an actor and as the character. Watching Rayner, I would like her to heed that rule that Jimmy Cagney had for screen acting when he said that you should always look the person you're speaking to in their camera eye or the eye that's closest to the camera. The only scene that Louise has that's really well played is when she pretends she receives a telegram full of good news and then tells the drama school girls to raid her wardrobe because she doesn't need it anymore. But she really does. For a wardrobe so hard won by a girl used to wearing one dress and a cloth coat, it's like watching a village burnt to the ground. When Mervyn Leroy left Warner's, he took Lana Turner with him. His first project in MGM was dramatic school. He didn't direct it, but he worked as producer. Leroy cast Lana in a small role. Lana Turner was 17 years old when she did the picture. Since she was still a minor, she was obligated to join MGM's Little Red Schoolhouse with Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, amongst others. Her first project in the studio had been one of those dreadful Andy Hardy movies with Rooney and Garland. Lana talked about dramatic school in her memoir, Lana, The Lady, The Legend, The Truth, published in 1982. She doesn't disappoint with the backstage details. Lana recalled that the star, Louise Rayner, and the director, Bob Sinclair, bickered constantly. He would yell orders at Louise about how to play a scene. Louise would then feign a headache or nausea and leave the set for the day. One day, after she had left the day before, the cast and crew had proceeded with rehearsal as usual. Lana wrote, Just when Louise seemed to have the right mood, he ordered a take. They corrected the lighting, everything was set. But when the camera started rolling, she suddenly went rigid and toppled straight to the floor. Cut! Kill the lights! Sinclair was livid as he bent over Louise. But instead of checking her pulse, he exploded. You goddamn bitch, get up off the floor. I'm sick of your tricks. She didn't move. She lay there like a corpse. We were herded out of the way, but we watched at a distance as studio assistants tried to lift her. Finally, a stretcher was constructed out of planks so the crew could carry her, still totally rigid, off the set. Although the word around the studio was that she was ill, I knew in my heart that what she had done was deliberate. Paulette Goddard didn't produce any of that kind of tension, but it was clear she was also a star. Besides her strong part, she had a bigger dressing room than the rest of us, and her costumes were made for her while ours came out of wardrobe. The jewelry she wore was real and her own. I've never seen anyone quite so beautiful and elegant except at a distance. Although she had a delicious sense of humor, she still occupied a pedestal, and I was quite in awe of her. Someday, I told myself, I would be like her. 
Virginia Gray, who has a small role as one of the students in the dramatic school, reported in an interview that she watched Paulette in a scene with a bunch of girls. Then, to quote Virginia, she said Paulette seemed to be the most confident of the lot, but then afterwards, when she picked up a comb, her fingers were trembling. Paulette maintained a confident exterior, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't vulnerable during the production. Each day on the set, Louise Rayner wore a camel hair coat to the set. Paulette wore sable. Louise was quoted with praise for Paulette, but then added that she had a terrific zest for learning that stemmed from a lack of something in her background that Paulette had tried to make up for. It sounds like a really bitchy way of saying she lacked a formal education. Anita Luce has snippets of what would have been a fantastic book, The Perils of Paulette, that she had planned. It was a book commissioned by a publisher back in the 1970s. Unfortunately, they had to return the advance on the project because Paulette refused to talk about her time with Chaplin. The way Anita put it, no Chaplin, no book. Paulette Goddard was such a stand-up dame. The role she played in Hollywood didn't have to her justice. Anita's writing on Paulette tops my charts for my favorite things written about women from classic Hollywood. The way Anita tells it, Paulette considered the admiration of men as inevitable as breathing. It seemed only natural for her to bank on it. I'll close with a very brief excerpt from one of my favorite essays from Anita Luce, Anatomy of a Siren. One night during World War II, when she was in New York, drinking champagne at the bar in El Morocco, when a man she had met in Washington stepped up and asked, how would you like to go to China and entertain the troops? Having left Charlie, she was free at loose ends and also a little bit tipsy, so she agreed. She was always accepted invitations, knowing that when she bowed out, no one could express urgent regrets. This time she was trapped. American troops under General Cheneau were on the move, fighting with Japanese invaders. Before realizing what she'd done, Paulette found herself in war-torn China, the first and only female among acres of men in khaki. Night after night, she danced with soldiers on makeshift platforms with the campaign surged around them. Now, it was only to be expected that those partners took every possible advantage of dancing with Paulette, and she endured their lack of restraint as best she could. Those poor boys were on their way to hell, she said, so how could a girl blame them for being pushy? Those six weeks of being mauled in China seemed like six years of hard labor on the waterfront of Marseille. Every bead had been rubbed off her ball gown and she was left with one desire, to spend the rest of her life as a wallflower. Paulette staggered off a plane in California and found Burgess Meredith waiting for her. Gee, but you look awful, he said, a remark that canceled out the creepy double entendres that had assailed her for weeks. When Burgess added, let's get married, it seemed to put a limit on sex once and for all. So I let him lead me straight to the license bureau, Paulette acknowledged. Her six years as Mrs. Meredith became a series of letdowns. A climax came when she heard from Burgess's own lips of his love for a rival. At that time, the Merediths were living at a lovely little farm in New Jersey. One week, Paulette invited Salvador Dolly to Sunday lunch and boasted that he'd be served fresh produce from their own farm. 
In planning the menu, she figured it ought to be somewhat exotic to match the eccentricity of the outrageous Salvador. Then came a sudden inspiration. The main dish could be a suckling pig. One Saturday night, Burgess went to the icebox to get a can of beer and suddenly froze motionless at the sight that met his gaze. The piglet, all ready for the oven, stuffed, garnished, with a little apple in its mouth. Addressing it, Burgess gasped, Leonora, what have they done to you, Leonora? And he looked absolutely stricken. Paulette was flabbergasted. It was the first time I'd ever heard a word about those feelings of his. I could have sworn that I was the only one he loved. The humiliation of sharing Burgess's love with a piglet was too much. One frustration followed another until the Merediths faced each other over breakfast one morning and decided to call it quits. After their divorce, they remained the best of enemies. But at long last came a marriage that made up for the perils of the preceding ones. Eric Mariah Remark fulfilled every one of Paulette's tough requirements. More than handsome, he was elegant. More than elegant, he was a wit. More than witty, he was a famous writer. His anti-war novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, had won him worldwide renown, and Eric's brilliant career had made him a millionaire. He had become a connoisseur of every amenity, art, women, jewels, food, and wine. His appreciation of Dom Perignon champagne and Persian caviar matched that of Paulette herself. Several of the most celebrated beauties in the world had been Eric's mistresses. In fact, he met Paulette by chance in a Park Avenue florist shop when he had gone to order flowers for her predecessor. He sent the flowers, but he asked Paulette to dine, which they did every night until Eric died 14 years later. Eric had a gallantry towards women that has now gone out of fashion. As a European and German-born at that, he was not quite as bewildered as most men are by the enigmas his bride presented, but he merely put them down as shenanigans, and they amused him. But Eric also considered Paulette as seriously as the greatest specimen in all of his collections, more fascinating than his Egyptian bronzes or his Monet water lilies. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time for episode 49 when I talk about Rosalind Russell in What a Woman from 1943. And you can look forward to episode 50 when I talk about Joan Crawford in Female on the Beach from 1955. Thanks very much. Bye.